most weeks, it's pretty straightforward. I read, you know, I really read the passage, read some commentaries, and it seems very clear to me, like, what's happening. Um, but as I read this, I bet you I went back and forth no less than 10 or 15 times between thinking I knew what was going on, and then I would read more, and then I would ask myself a question and be like, wait a minute, what about this? And so there, this sermon is, uh, it feels in my own heart, like as I was preparing it and understanding it, it feels very different than most, because I would say that there's one portion of this that I'm very unsure of. Um, there are some things that are being communicated that I don't understand, I don't know what's happening. Um, I think it's a combination of a few things, and I don't, I, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when it's, when it's both and. Like, I want it to be either or. Like, I want there to just be, this is what's happening, let's, pu let's push forward with this idea, because then we can kind of, we have one solitary thing that we're trying to explore, and it makes it simpler. It's, it's easy to wrap up in a nice package, it's easy to understand, but as I was reading, I, I began to realize, like, there are parts of this that are really unclear to me, and I'm very unsure about what is happening. I think there is a possibility of it could go one way or the other, or more likely, it is both things at the same time, which makes my brain hurt. Um, you can ask Jennifer. I had a headache for like four days straight. Um, I don't know what it came from, but I think it came from this, like reading and trying to figure it out, and then one day I think I got it figured out, and then ten minutes later I don't, and then ten minutes later I flip-flop back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so that's been my week. Um, so... I am going to do everything that I can to try and communicate clearly all the confusion, right? I'm going to communicate clearly all of the fogginess that is still in my brain about trying to understand what is going on here. <coughs> and then there's a portion of the sermon that I think is absolutely, it, it is, there's no doubt about what's happening. And I think that's going to be the thing that hopefully is going to really hit home for you. Um, that's where I, I found the conviction in my own heart. That's where I found the challenge from God is there is a couple of verses very in particular that like there's no question about what God is teaching us. And so just buckle up, I guess. We're, we're, it's a, there's a lot of things happening here. So um, the first thing then I guess I want to say uh, to help us get our mind in the right place is to think about our life and all of the things that we do and probably everything, if not everything, most things in life can be glorifying to God or they can be sinful depending on your attitude, depending on the heart behind it. Um, things as simple as eating food, right? We, we looked at Ecclesiastes a year ago and Solomon over and over and over again said, look, this is, the will, this, is, this is the point of life to enjoy a good meal, to praise God, to enjoy your family, have a good meal, right? There is, so there's, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good meal, but we also recognize that food can be a, become a problem for us, right? Something as simple as that. Loving your family can be a good thing, but if you do it to the detriment of others, if you do it unjustly, it can be a bad thing, right? I mean, just think about if you if you run into a female bear in the woods, are you? Th that's already scary enough. But how much worse is it if she has cubs with her, right? You're like, I mean, if I ran into a female bear by herself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go the other direction. If there's cubs, I'm like, well, I'm dead. That's it. I mean, right? Because we understand that nature, moms can be a little bit unjust when it comes to protecting their children. C.S. Lewis said this, he, if, if a child is hurt while under your care, who would you rather deal with? Who would you rather explain yourself and how the kid got hurt, the father or the mother? The dad, right? Almost every time. 
there are things that we can take too far, right? We, we love our country. I mean, I hope you love your country, but even that can be taken too far, right? We don't want to love our country to the detriment of loving God. We don't want to love our country to the detriment of loving our neighbors in other countries, right? And so there, this is true in almost everything. I, I would probably say in everything. I don't know. I didn't think through every single thing that happens in our life. Um, but the point is that it, it depends on our attitude. It depends on our motive when we do something. And so this brings us to, are we allowed to question God and what he does? And the answer is, yes, as long as we do it with the right attitude, right? And so that's what we're going to get to. We're going to see that, um, and we're going to see how important it is to have the correct attitude and understanding this. So I want to tell you where, um, where the struggle has been in my heart and in my brain, like trying to read this and figure it all out. And the question is, it really even backing all the way up to back to verse 6 is, is God choosing individuals for salvation or is he choosing individuals to promote, to, to, for his covenant to go forward, for his promises to be fulfilled? And that's the answer, that's the question that I wish I could say it's absolutely one way or the other. The que- there's also a question in my mind, is he talking about individuals or is he talking about nations? Right? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, that come, we talked about last week, that comes from Malachi. I think that very clearly is not talking about the two boys individually, but, in this, but more nations. But then again, it's also talking about them individually. And so here, those two questions, what is God doing What is he choosing people for, and is he talking about individuals or is he talking about nations? I think that the answer is that, yes, he is talking about individuals and he is talking about nations. He is talking about salvation and he's talking about God's providence, his purpose being fulfilled in these individuals, in these nations. And so all of this is happening at the same time, and it gets really confusing. And my brain, as I was trying to, 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 to pin this down had a really hard time understanding when is he doing one, when is he doing the other, is he doing them at the same time? And so those are the questions that I set out to try and answer to the best of my ability. Um, I don't know how I did. You can tell me afterwards. Uh, but we're, we're going to look at it, and we're going to try our best to understand what is going on here. Okay. So we are posed with another question here in verse 14. And if we, if, so he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now that is an extremely important question. Regardless of all of the other theological ideas that exist in this passage, do you believe that God is just in everything that he does? That's a question that we should and we should be sure about the answer. Regardless of whether we understand what God is doing in salvation, regardless of, what we under, of how we understand anything that God is doing, at the end of the day, do you say to yourself, look, I'm trying to figure this out, but I don't know, but I trust in your justice. No matter what, no matter how confused, no matter anything else, do you believe that God is just? And if you don't, that's a problem. If you don't think that God is 100% just, if he is sweeping sin under the rug, if he's ignoring things that he shouldn't be ignoring, if he's letting people off the hook that shouldn't be let off of the hook, that's a problem. That's not a God worth worshiping. Just like last week when we asked the question in verse 6, right? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. If If you don't believe that statement, 
You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. If you don't believe that God is just, fully, 100%, you don't worship the God of the Bible. It is one of his attributes. It is who he is. He administers justice everywhere he goes. This is why we stand very, very opposed and very different than other world religions. I think I've told this story before, but years ago when a friend of mine, we were up on campus and we were witnessing and we ran into this young man who was a Muslim and we're talking to him and we're trying to understand. He's explaining to us all this stuff and he makes the statement, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, we, we don't have anybody who has died for our sins like Jesus, but God counts our good deeds as 10 and our bad deeds as one. That's not a God worth worshiping. That's not just, right? We want a God who is fully and 100% just, who does justice all of the time. So then we might ask, what is then, what is justice? It can't be our definition, right? It has to be the definition that God gives to us. And this is the definition that he gives. Verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We're going to stop there. We're not going to deal with Pharaoh yet. We're going to stop there, and we want to look at these statements. Right? Okay, so he's going to have mercy on whomever he chooses. So it's purely up to God. Whoever he chooses to have mercy on, whoever he chooses to have compassion on, this is whom he does. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is fully just. Why? Because none of us deserve his mercy. None of us deserve his compassion. What do we deserve? What do we know that we deserve from the very beginning of the Bible? What does God say to Adam and Eve? If you eat of this tree, you will die. Our sin brought about death into our life. That's what we deserve. We deserve to die, and we deserve to go to hell forever. Every single one of us. That is is the thing in which we deserve. That is what we have earned from our sin. It's really, really simple. So the fact that God would have mercy on anybody is his kindness. The fact that he would be compassionate to anybody, that he hasn't struck every single one of us dead... Is God's mercy and compassion. So the fact that he chooses to have mercy on some and not on others is not an injustice on God's part. That is what Paul is arguing here. Is there injustice on God's part? That's the question he asks, and then he answers it by saying, God will have mercy on whomever he chooses. God will have compassion on whomever he chooses. Now, don't think that this mercy and compassion is 100% fully rooted in salvation, right? This is the question. Okay, so that mercy and compassion, does, is, is that only being applied when we think about salvation? Well, we can have mercy and compassion. God has mercy and compassion on people outside of the realm of salvation all the time. So this is not exclusively talking about salvation. I think it's possible that it is, but I don't think that it can be, I don't, I, I don't think we can read this and justly say to ourselves, like responsibly say, this absolutely has to do with salvation and salvation alone. Why is that? 
Think about all the times that God has had mercy and compassion on you outside of that, outside of the realm of salvation, right? You get pulled over by a police officer, he doesn't give you a ticket, or you go flying past one, right, and he doesn't even turn around. There's God's mercy in small things in your life and in big things in your life, right? What if you get a diagnosis of cancer? God doesn't owe you healing. He doesn't owe you to be able to overcome that and to to live on. And yet many, many, many people do. God has mercy on people all of the time outside of the realm of salvation. So to say that this only applies to salvation is irresponsible. But to say that it can't apply to salvation, I think is also irresponsible, right? It's both. Both things are happening. So if we think about, let's look at, let's look at the, the second half of this section. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now there are, there are some who would say, well, the hardening of Pharaoh is once again purely about salvation. Here's the thing. The, there's two camps, right? There's two, there's two not, not camps because we're together, but there's two different ideas going on, right? Is God choosing us for salvation or are we choosing God? That's the question that comes up when we read this section of Scripture over and over and over again. One side of it wants to say none of this can be about salvation because it makes, it makes their understanding of, of like, we, we choose God, that makes, that makes it wrap up. It makes it very easy. But on the other side, it's the same thing is true. Those who would say, well, well, God chooses us and we have no response and we have no ability to say no to him would say this is only about salvation. Because if that were true, it would mean there's no question, right? All of these things would make that very, very clear. And so when we come to it and we want to be responsible and we want to say, what is God doing here? We can't just fall into one side or the other. So we can't look at this example of Pharaoh and say, well, that, that's, that's all about salvation. God hardened his heart against being saved. And look, there's my proof right here that God chooses some and there's nothing that they can do about it. Is that what is being said? Oh, let me just ask you this. Do you need a hardening to sin? Like, what does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? If this is solely about salvation... Why would God harden his heart? It's unnecessary. Is it not? Do you, before you were saved, did you need God to harden your heart so that you wouldn't believe in him? That was already happening. That's the default position, right? Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sin. There's nothing we can do about it. Like, we, we are dead in it. You, you are, by default, hardened. So God must be doing something else. This example must be showing us something else other than salvation. He hardens his heart. Why? What had happened if Pharaoh had had full ability to make a decision when the, when the Hebrews are leaving? And he had said, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm just going to let him go. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of chasing back and forth, back and forth. I'm done with all this. Just let him go. And what would history write about how the, how the Hebrews made it out of Egypt? Pharaoh was kind. Pharaoh let them go. He showed mercy on them. He released them from their slavery. But God says, I'm not going to let that happen, right? He hardens Pharaoh's heart for what purpose? So that his glory would be shown. So that when we read the history books, we recognize Pharaoh chased after them, but God saved them. 
parted the Red Sea, and they were able to go across. I think it's really important that no matter where you stand, no matter how you understand God's working in salvation, that when we read this passage that is flouted and touted and put up on a pedestal as like the passage to prove this idea that God chooses us and we have no choice, that we have to be honest about what we read. I think I said this last week, but I came to chapter 9. I mean, I, so I grew up. I mean, this is, this is, that's the idea of effectual calling, right? That God, cho- that, that God calls people. And they have no ability to say no to that, right? We, sometimes we call it irresistible grace, whatever. Effectual calling is a more biblical way of thinking about it. That's, I, that's what I grew up with. That's how my dad taught me. I went to college and seminary in places that didn't teach that. But the, I have read the Bible. I've studied it. I have been convinced that that is correct. And so my whole life, people have been telling me, Romans 9, that's the one. That's where you're going to get them. As if it's a fight or something, which it's not. And so then I come to Romans 9 this week, and I'm studying it, and I'm saying, I don't see it. I saw it in chapter 8, but I don't see it here in front of me. What I see here in front of me is God choosing people, is God choosing nations, right? And not necessarily for salvation. And it's really important because I want you to know that I came to the text with a preconceived idea of what it meant, and God changed my whole outlook on what this chapter means, on what the things are that we find here. And I wasn't angry. I was like, oh, dang it. I I was overjoyed that I was like, man, there are so many more things going on here than this little small idea that people like to argue about. There are so many deeper nuances going on in this chapter. And there are so many questions that God raised in my mind that he said, you better deal with this honestly. You better be responsible with this. Because he, he is telling, coming into his pulpit to preach to his people. I can't just be like, well, this is, this is what it means. I'm going to ignore all of the other possibilities. And so when I read this. I see a lot of different things going on. I, I ask myself a lot of questions, and I came away with less answers, I think probably, uh, or I have more questions at the end of it. So Paul is making these statements, right, that we have to take for what they are. He will have mercy on whom he wills, he will have compassion on whom he wills. He will have mercy on whomever he wills, and he will harden whomever he wills. Right? This is what Paul is trying to teach to us. And this is not, there, there is no smoking gun, right? There, there is no way to say this is indefinitely about salvation and salvation alone. I don't think that's a responsible reading of what we see. And so all that is to say is that how we read verses 1 to 18 makes a huge difference on how we understand 19 and 20. Because 19 and 20 are really, really hard for us. It, it, it's hard to hear this, it's hard to hear this and to then to hear the example that Paul gives, because this is, we, we don't like it. We don't like the things that he has to say. And so if we read 1 through 18, and the only thing that we see in them is, it, this is only about individual salvation, it's only about the individual, verse 19 and 20 look very, very different than if we understand that there are a lot of things going on, that there's lots of nuances. I do think that there are elements of salvation. I do think there are elements of individual salvation going on here. And I also think that there are elements of the other. Let me just give a real quick example. 
If we go back to what we looked at last week, he's choosing Isaac, right? Through I, this is verse 7, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. That is salvation language all day long, right? Who are the children of God but those who have been saved? But then later, in verse 12, he, well, really, if you go back to, let's go back to 10. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, one forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is the reason, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. This is not salvation language. Why is he calling Jacob? Is he calling him to salvation, or is he calling him to be the leader of the nation? Yes, it's both. I, you, we can't just say it's one or the other. And so I, I, I hope that I'm being clear. I hope that I'm explaining to you all of the jumbledness, right? All of the things, all of the different things that we have to try and understand if we're going to understand this incredibly critical, important question of verse 19. We can't simplify it down to one thing. There are a lot of things going on. And so this, this leads us to the question in verse 19. And this is where God ha had conviction. Because this is the thing I'm sure of. Right? You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? Paul's answer to that question, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Where we started, right? Can you go to God and ask him questions? Absolutely you can. If you go to him in humility and you say, Lord, I want to know more about who you are. I want to grow deeper in my relationship with you. I read this thing. I don't understand it. Can you please help me to understand it? Do you think God's answer is going to be, how dare you? Who are you to answer back to me? Of course not. He's going to look at you in love and kindness. He may still tell you you don't get to know. He may still say, this is not something that I'm ever going to reveal to you. But he's going to do it in love, right? But if we go to the Lord, and, and this is, this is I, am, I am like 99% sure convinced that this is what Paul is doing. Paul has been teaching on this subject. He's been talking about it. He's been talking about it. And the people come to him and say, how dare God? do these things how dare god hold somebody responsible and paul's response is how dare you how dare you stand before god who created everything the entire universe with an arrogant attitude and say what are you doing god no that is not the way in which we approach god i may not understand all of the nuances that are going on but i know something for sure don't do that you want to go and stand before God and ask him questions? That is wonderful. But you better do it on your knees. You better do it in humility. Because here is the thing. This, this right here in verse 20 is a very condensed version of what we read in Job. Right? You remember this? This very three-chapter long answer that God gives to Job? Let's just go back and look at a little bit of it. I, I, I toyed with the idea of reading the whole thing. But it's, it's a little bit long. We're not going to do that. Um, but let's go to Job 38. Romans 9.20 is a simplified version of these three chapters. So I, I assume you guys know what's happening in Job, right? The beginning of the book, 
God takes a lot of things away from him. Satan says, look, the only reason he praises your name is because look at all the stuff he has. Look at all the blessings that you've given to him. And so God takes pretty much all of it away, except for Job's life and the life of his wife, right? And his wife doesn't even understand. She says, just curse God and die. That's the only thing I know what to do. And so Job and his buddies come over, and they have this conversation. It doesn't go well, right? And they're, they're dishonoring and disrespectful to God in the way in which they are talking about him. And finally, the Lord answers in verse chapter 38. Man, just this. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from its womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light, sorry, from the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the deep, have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Go over to chapter 40. Because we need to see Job's response, which is really, really important. Verse 3. So this goes on, right? We just skipped like a chapter and a half of God continuing to bring up example after example after example of his power and Job's futility. So Job answers him. Chapter 40, verse 3. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am a man of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces with the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats like grass, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is, is in his loins and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his lips are bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near, let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. 
For his shade, the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with your fish hook or press down his tongue with the cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Now, when, Leviathan, the, these are dinosaurs. In case you were wondering, these are dinosaurs that God is talking about, right? All of the, You get the description, and God is saying, do they ever ask you permission to do anything, right? The message that God is giving to Job is, you can't even master one of my creatures, much less can you master God. Verse 5, will you play with him as the bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up amongst the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with, fisher, with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle and you will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. If we go to God incorrectly, he may speak to us out of the whirlwind. And it may sound very similar to this. There's one thing I know this morning, and that is we should go to God. We should be seeking answers to these questions, right? We should be asking him, Lord, what is going on with Pharaoh? Why is it that you hardened him? Was that to do with salvation? Was it to do with other things? And we should explore the Bible and ask questions and try and understand these things as deeply as we can. But at the end of the day, when we go to God and question him, Whatever the answer might, whatever answer we might get, whether it be no answer at all or whether it be, might be an answer that we don't want to hear, here's the thing that we don't ever want to do is say, well, if that's the answer, then you, God, are unjust because it doesn't agree with my thought about the way that the world should work. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? May it never be. We cannot Believe this about the God of the universe. Now we can't quit without dealing with this last part. Right, here is the hypothetical question that Paul asks. So he asks this question, he gives us an answer, he says, look, you better check your heart before you stand before the Lord Ask him all the questions you want, but do it in humility. And then he goes on, right? Who are you to answer back to God? Will the mold, what, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? <coughs> Excuse me. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul is laying out this argument, right? We are God's creatures. He has created us. He can do with us whatever he wants, right? That's, it's a very simple thing. I don't think there's any confusion about what he is trying to say. God is the potter. We are the clay. He does what he wants. And whatever he does, he is just in doing so. 
He is never unjust in the way in which he treats his creation. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he gives us this hypothetical. And I'm, I'm like you. I kind of wish it weren't here. It's hard. Because here's the thing. He's not saying that this is the way it is. He's just saying, what if? And I don't like what ifs. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with what ifs because wait, why, are, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about a what if? And, and that was my heart when I started the week. Like, why, why can't you just have left it alone? But the Lord, I think, showed me why this question is really, really important. Why is this hypothetical question really important? Because he brings up a reality, a possible reality in which God deals with salvation that we don't like. I don't like. As a Calvinist, I don't like reading this and being like, oh yeah, that sounds great. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which we ha he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, who, has, who he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So I say it again, it's really important that we understand that this is a hypothetical situation, right? Paul is not saying this is absolutely the way it is. But he is posing this question to every single one of us. No matter what you think, no matter where your theological stance is, you need to answer this question. What if this is how God operates? Does it compromise his character? Does it compromise any part of who he is? Does it make him not loving? Does it make him not merciful? Does it, does it compromise his grace? Any of the things in which we know to be God's character, this is who he is, this is how we define God. If this is the reality, then we have to ask ourselves, does it compromise who God is? I don't know about you, but I... I challenge myself to go back and just read, read the Bible again, cover to cover, asking myself this question. Every time I see God act, every time I see something happen, would, could, could that description of God exist within this reality? That God has created some vessels for wrath that he, would, that he has endured from the, from the moment that he created them, right? Does it make God less God? The other thing I want to say is this. If you're here this morning, and, and, well, let, let me just back up. So th this brings up the question in that I think we all wanna, want an answer to. And I don't think we get an answer to it, unfortunately. But the question is, why wouldn't God just save everybody, right? Why, why, if God has the ability and the power to save every human being that has ever lived, why won't he just save everyone? Some people give an answer to that by saying, well, God gives the choice. He gives the chance to everyone, and they can choose to believe in him or not. The other answer would be that God chooses some, and, he, and Paul gives us the reason as to which why he would create vessels who would be prepared beforehand for wrath. What does he say? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, so there's two reasons, right? We, we don't like to think about God's wrath. We don't like to think about him showing it to people, but it's an important part of who he is. That God would show his wrath, that he would show his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order that, right, that's, a, that's a, the reason in which why he would do this 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why would he create people and not give them a chance to be saved? His wrath, his power are shown in their life, and then it shows the glory and mercy to the vessels that he has chosen to save. This is the argument that Paul is giving. If you don't like that, please don't argue with me. That's what he's saying, right? The hypothetical situation, this is the reasoning that he gives for the possible reality that there might be people who are created as vessels of wrath who will be destroyed. That God did not save them, that he didn't choose to save them, that they have no chance in salvation. This is the answer that Paul gives. And so once again, you have to ask yourself the question, in that reality, if that exists, does, is God's character compromised? And here's the thing, the, our, our flesh, our gut wants to say, that's not fair. Why can't he just give the choice to everybody? And the answer is, he is being unfair on the side of love, on the side of grace, and on the side of mercy. Not unfair on the side of hate or wrath. The fact that God would save any human being who has ever walked the planet is God's grace. His love. Look into your own heart and think, do I deserve the love that God has given to me? No, none of us do. Nobody who has ever lived deserved God's love and grace. So I'm, I want to challenge you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, yes, th th I believe that, God e that everybody has a choice. That's totally fine. Uh, there are lots of verses that I struggle with that I don't understand. I mean, when we were at home group this week, it, it was brought up. I'll have to look at it here. I want to I make sure I say it right. Um, Tyrell brought it up. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's hard for me to understand in my, in my understanding of how salvation works. Or even in Romans 5, right? You go back to Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. You see, here's the thing. The Bible is not 100% clear, but the question that we need to be asking ourselves as we dig into theology, as we want to know who God is, the question is, what does the Bible teach? I read these verses, and I'm trying to make sense of them in my understanding, right? And, we, and, and here's the only thing that I would say to you. This morning, if you, if you fall on the other side, or if you believe in, that, that everybody has a choice, you have to take Romans 8 and 9 and read it responsibly. You have to read it and try and understand what it means in light of that truth as well. We can't, no matter what it is, no matter what theology you're trying to figure out, no matter what part of God you're trying to understand, you can't just say, eh, I don't like that. That doesn't fit with my thinking. I'm just, I gotta, I'm gonna push that away. I'm just gonna forget about that. I wanna skip over this verse. I wanna skip over this chapter. I wanna skip over this idea. We can't do it. We have to read every verse. We have to read every section, every chapter, every part of the Bible when we are trying to understand who God is. And the last thing I would say about this sort of debate over this idea is please don't say to yourself, there's no way in which God could do this. There's no way in which God could operate in this world, right? The 22, this, this hypothetical, right? Because Paul is, Paul is giving us this option. He's, set, he's telling us to consider it. What if this were true? He wants you to explore that. He wants you to ask that question of yourself. What if it were true that this is the way that God operates? And once again, it's not that God is being unfair. Well, it's not that God is being unfair on the side of hate. He is being unfair on the side of love. 
And this brings us full circle, right? Back to this very first verse. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? So if God is being unfair, is he being unjust? No, he's not. How in, how in the world does this work then? How is it that God can be just and merciful at the same time? You see, we recognize that when you do something wrong, right, you go to a court of law, let's say you get that speeding ticket, and you go and the judge is like dismissed. That's great. He's being merciful to you, but is he being just? No, he's not, which is okay, right? I'm not, I, I much prefer the mercy side of a judge, right, in that situation. But here's the thing. As humans, we can't do both at the same time. We either have to be merciful or just. Those two things don't work together. How is God both? And this is the beauty of it. And this is another thing that I know without question is absolutely true. I may not understand all of the inner workings of salvation, but I know how God is just in mercy at the same time, right? Because he sent Jesus to earth, that he would take on my sin and die. He showed me mercy by not sending me to hell, by not giving me the thing that I deserve, which is to burn away from God for eternity because of all the evil things that I do and say and think. God was merciful, but he doesn't just say, well, I'm just going to fudge the numbers, right? Your one good deed is going to count as 10. No, God said, I'm going to be absolutely just and absolutely merciful. I'm going to send my son. Somebody's going to pay for those sins that you have committed, that I have committed, but it doesn't have to be you. And God sent Jesus to this planet. You see, God is unfair on the side of love because he gave us forgiveness and we did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. Christ did everything so that we could be saved. He is fully merciful. He is fully just. And that is realized in the person and life and death and resurrection of Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm going to rely on God's mercy and I think he'll just... He'll, he'll ignore all the things that I have done wrong. I don't need Jesus. I don't need any of that nonsense. I'm just going to try and be good, and I'm just going to bank on the fact that God is merciful. He is merciful, and he is just, and somebody is going to pay for those sins. That is not the right path to take. If you don't lay your sins on Jesus, if you don't repent and ask him to be the one who forgives you of all of the things that you have done wrong, you will pay for them, and it won't be pretty. But if you trust in Jesus, if you have faith in him, he will save you. He will forgive you of all of those things. God's mercy will come through. His justice was laid on Christ. His wrath was laid on him. And his mercy and his grace get laid on us. This is a blessing and an understanding and a thing that I, I don't get it. I don't understand why God would do this, but he has. He has made that promise, right? We go back to last week. Do you believe that God's word has never failed? The promise is that when you believe on Jesus, he will save you. He will forgive you. Father God, we are, we are so finite. Our brains and our ability to understand and our logic is just pitiful in comparison to you. Lord, help us to hold these two ideas together. That what you say at the end of this section in Romans 11, that your ways are unknowable and your ways are unsearchable, that what we saw in Job, that you were so far beyond us, that your power, it's, it's immeasurable compared to the, the weakness that we have. 
and yet you invite us to know you. You wrote this book with your own hand through men inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we could read, think, and understand who you are. Father, when we can't make sense of it, help us to be okay with that. And when we are able to make sense of it, Lord, I pray that we would fully embrace it, that we would fully accept it, no matter what. No matter what, how much it challenges the things we thought we knew were true. We would be willing to reform our thinking, that we would be willing to, <coughs> to change our mind to be more like yours. Father, salvation is a great mystery. We don't understand all of its inner workings, but we are so grateful that you have sent Christ to die for us that we could be saved, that we would experience your love and your mercy, and that we would experience your justice by reading about what has happened to Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray for deeper understanding. We pray for more knowledge, for greater insight. And in the meantime, God, we pray that we will just trust you, that we will trust your word, that we will trust your justice, no matter what it, no matter what it is. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.